kind of uh, re-going over a little bit, verses 10 through 12, focusing on 12, and then we're going to pick up tonight, and Lord willing, get through verses 13 to 15 um, with uh, the response to this sin. Now, let's read here verse 9 down through 15. It tells us, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto the uh, unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any, uh, lest any finding him should kill him. Now as we pick up back tonight, we look and we see all is well in the garden until things go quickly awry. The fall happens, mankind is mercifully thrown out of the gardens, that way they um, can, can live. They're now clothed uh, by innocent blood. We then find that they have children, and those children uh, go to make offering, and the one offers by faith, and the one doesn't. Cain, who does not offer by faith, would uh, be consumed with rage, with jealousy, with sin, with his own self-idolatry, and he would eventually uh, rise up without killing that sin and would instead kill his brother. In verse number 8, it says that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Instead of slaying an innocent animal to worship the Lord, he would instead slay his own brother, kill his own brother who was uh, one who called upon the Lord by faith. And now Cain here, we had found the response in verse 9. The Lord says unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? Not because God doesn't know, but rather because God is drawing him to repentance. And Cain's response, he says, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which thou hast opened, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto her, uh, unto, excuse me, unto thee her strength. A fugitive of vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. The judgment pronounced upon Cain is that he is no longer able to produce fruit from the ground as he was able to. How ironic that his punishment is exactly in line with Cain's unfaithful worship and sacrifice from Genesis 4. And who remember the sacrifice that Cain makes? What does he bring? He brings the fruit from his own hands. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 3. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now we looked and we talked about this several weeks ago that Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer, if you will. Now there's nothing wrong with being a farmer. We need farmers, don't we? We need farmers, we need truck drivers, we need people who bag groceries. We need all sorts of jobs. Nevertheless, here in this case, what he does is he substitutes his own works for the shedding of blood. It can never be so. He substitutes his own works uh, and, and takes his own works into his hands and lifts that up to God instead of lifting up faith alone. Faith alone pleases God. But without faith, it is impossible to, to please God, is what the book of Hebrews tells us. Now, Cain doing this, we find how strange, strangely ironic that it is that the thing that Cain was so good at, gardening, that now he's not going to be able to do it anymore. Right? His parents were in a garden that they didn't have to grow. They were placed there. They didn't have to worry about those things. Adam was told to, to keep it, but it was to keep it from, from what? To keep it from sin entering in. And now that sin had entered in, and now that they are living outside 
of that blessed Garden of Eden. Now, they're having to work. As a matter of fact, part of the curse for Adam was just this. He gets to go from living inside of this beautiful garden that he didn't have to work so hard to, to pull the weeds and to worry about thorns and thistles to then after his sin uh, in Genesis three seventeen, Remember, uh, God says, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Let me stop there for a moment. Let's do a simple, simple pop quiz here. Is the ground cursed? Yes. All right, wait, you guys passed. How do you know that? Because he said, cursed is the ground. There we go. Uh, it's pretty simple. We live in a sin-cursed world. This world is not getting better. Evolution would teach that evolution is evolving to be better. We're finding that things are getting worse. People are getting worse. The earth is getting worse. You can argue about uh, climate change and this, that, and the other, and all of your different stuff. At the end of the day, this world ain't going to last. Why? Because of sin. Not because of hairspray and, 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 uh, and cow flatulence, all right? It's, it's ending because of sin. Now look at this. We find that the sin enters into the world. The ground is now cursed. Verse 18 of chapter 3, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it was thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Cain, a farmer, offers up his own fruit, offers up the work of his own hands, and does so without faith. God says that's not going to work. It's not going to fly, because it won't fly. No good work can we offer up to the Lord. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now, with this worship that he was supposed to lift, he doesn't do it by faith, and he does it by the own works of his hands. And now the very labor of which he labored so hard at doing, and was so good at doing, because don't think for a minute that the fruit that he brought to the Lord was bad fruit. It was bad spiritual fruit, but it certainly had to have been the most beautiful of fruit, luscious and vibrant and green, and, and uh, he might have had the biggest pumpkin on the block. Probably, um, we don't know. But nevertheless, he was able to grow. But now God says to him, as a part of his curse, and now art thou cursed from the earth. The earth has already been cursed, but now Cain himself is being separated, if you will, from being able to have that bond to be able to grow things as he once was. He says, uh, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from my hand, when thou tillest the ground, right, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. I mean, you can till all you want, Cain, but there will be no fruit. If you ever kept a garden or do keep a garden or try to grow anything, if you knew that it's not going to produce any fruit, would you ever till the ground? No. That's some hard work. Right? Would you go out there watering it every day if you know for sure it's not going to bring fruit? Why would you do those things? You do those things because you believe it's going to bring forth fruit. Here Cain's told, it ain't going to happen. Sorensen writes, God's punishment of Cain's crime was to place a double curse upon him. One, the ground would not yield unto thee her strength. Cain would have trouble raising crops the rest of his life. Implied is trouble and potential poverty, right? Think about this. If you can't grow food, what can't you do? You can't eat. Not only can you not eat, but you can't sell. What was his trade? What was his craft? It was growing food. It was growing crops. He would have sold, he would have bought, he would have done all these things by the work of his hands. The second thing, the second part of this curse is that a fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Cain would face trouble and have no rest in life. 
Implicit in the phrase is the idea of instability and difficulty. Indeed, the way of transgressors is hard. Proverbs 13.15 Cain, like his parents, came to learn the truth the hard way. They each had transgressed God's laws. They each suffered therefrom the rest of their lives. Sin always brings trouble, sorrow, and corruption. It is an viable law of nature. This is what we see. Sin always has consequences, doesn't it? Regardless of what sin it is, sin always has consequences. Now, we think about the biggest of sins, right? Like here, Cain kills, murders his brother. Big consequence, right? Ground's cursed. You're not going to be able to bear fruit. Now you're going to be a vagabond. You're going to be roaming around. People are going to be uh, out for vengeance. Uh, you're not going to be able to have the stability anymore. I love what Sorensen points out. I think this is very important. He dealt with the phrase, a fugitive and a vagabond shall thou be in the earth. Cain would face trouble and have no rest in life. Were we designed to work? Yes. Were we also designed to rest? Yes. You know, one of the strangest mysteries that science still has a trouble explaining is the fact that we need sleep. Right? It, the, the very fact of trying to figure out, it wasn't until even, but so long ago, the past few decades, that we've learned so much about sleep patterns. Uh, you think about things, if you've got a, a CPAP machine or something, right? And you, you know, well, that's because we've begun learning about these things. There was a long time where that stuff didn't exist. Now they can do sleep studies, they can figure out how you sleep, why you sleep. They can figure out better pillows and beds and mattresses, whether you need a, a hard bed or a soft bed or a medium bed or a whichever, right? You can figure out all these different things. But the thing that still puzzles many scientists is still the very fact of at the end of the day, you can only go but so long without rest. You can only go but so long. Now, one thing that like you look at someone like a, the Navy SEALs who go through, and you know they have to go through all this time where they get little to no sleep and they're training and, and they're training and they're training. They're learning how to deal with adversity and difficulty, but even still, they have to rest at some point. Even the strongest have to rest at some point. Why? Because our bodies need it. God designed it. Rest, like work, is a good thing. Work is often viewed nowadays as a bad thing, and rest is viewed as a good thing, but here's the thing. Both were designed to be good, but sin corrupts them both. Sin has made work to where it's so difficult where we have to work through the sweat of our brow to provide and to even have times where there's drought and seasons where there's not much crop being produced. And then there's also the other side where there's those that have been perverted uh, with, with sin who have perverted the idea of rest where now we overrest, where rest is now the goal, right? I got to work so I can rest. Well, here's the thing. Both should be imbalanced. If we look at the very days of creation themselves, we go back to that. What do we find? A day of rest. Did God need rest? Has He ever been tired? No, He never grows tired or weary. He's never even slept or slumbered, nor will He ever. You've never caught God snoring or sawing logs, but God makes the day of rest, the Sabbath day, to point to the fact that, one, we need that day of rest. Two, the eternal day of rest. Now think about this. Here, Cain is being told here that he's going to be a vagabond, a fugitive. What do you think of when you think of a fugitive? I think of old westerns, right? I think of old westerns, a fugitive on the run, right? They, they can't stay anywhere too long. Why? Because someone's going to catch them, right? They're always on the move, always roaming. They can never find a home. What a difficult thing this has to be. Sin has its consequence. And here, none of us are able to say, man, this is too harsh. If anything, you and I could even look at this and go, this is far too gracious, Every sin, as we've talked about, deserves hell. 
Right? There's no sin that's too good for hell. Every sin deserves it, but what we find is God is gracious. He's allowed him to live, yet in this, he won't experience the rest that later on down the line will, or that even his brother would have. He won't experience the rest that those by faith have. Unfaithfulness as well always leads to what? Unfruitfulness. Now look at this. He says, you're cursed, you're no longer going to be able to provide food, you're going to be on the run, all this. This is rough. But yet, faithfulness always does bring about fruit, doesn't it? Real faith will have real fruit. I had that conversation with somebody just the other day. We have this issue where we want to put fruit before faith. It can't happen that way. Right? We could put works out there, but works are just works, and they're just as filthy rags before God. It is faith. Faith that is necessary. Hold your place here. Turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 tells us a little bit about this sort of contrast between those who have fruit and those who don't. Really, it tells us the fruitlessness of being unfaithful or unbelieving, and it shows us as well the fruitfulness of believing. And look, Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds real good. But look at the opposite. Verse 4, The ungodly are not so. Here's Cain. Here's the way of Cain. But they're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. How about the New Testament telling us about unfaithfulness being unfruitfulness and faithfulness being fruitfulness? Well, we just talked about it earlier. We heard uh, Brother Danny talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Look, he tells us in Galatians 5, um, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Any of those sins that Cain committed? A few of them, right? There's hatred, there's murder, there's wrath, there's strife, right? There's several going on here because it's the flesh. What is the flesh? The flesh is unfaithfulness. The flesh will never believe God. The flesh doesn't want to believe God. The flesh only wants to please the flesh because the flesh only worships and can worship the flesh. The flesh worships self. What does the Spirit do? The fruit of the Spirit. right? And this is a gift to us who have been given the Spirit of God. But then that very same gift, it will produce this fruit. It will naturally occur. If these things are not there, there is no Spirit. Now look, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, and gifts such there is no law. Those sound like Cain, don't they? No, they don't. Right? They sounded an awful lot like Abel. They're going to sound an awful lot like Seth. They're going to sound like Noah. They're going to sound like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They're going to sound like Christ. They're going to sound like what every believer in Christ should be because we've been given the Spirit of God. We now live by faith. The just shall live by 
faith. Now, Phillips writes, True faith made Abraham a pilgrim and a stranger on earth. False religion made Cain a fugitive and a vagabond. He was lost and cursed man who could find no rest and no peace on the earth. His life would be a wilderness, meaningless and wasted. Satisfaction would evade him. His energies would be dissipated. His life spoiled. He would spend his days wandering away from God. Such are the fruits of false religion. Every act of our life is an act of faith. Either faith in who God is, what God has done, and what God has said, or faith in oneself. Now, what we would call unrighteousness or unfaithfulness, that is a faith, but it's just faith that's misplaced. Now, faith and real faith and living by faith, like Abraham, that it's accounted unto him for righteousness, that's faith and the promise and provision of God. The Word of God, the work of God. As we find that's looking to Christ. That, that is where we find faith. That is where we find fruit. That is where we find meaning and purpose in life. That is where we find that while in this world, we might just be like Abraham, a pilgrim and a stranger. We know that we're looking for a, a new heaven, a new earth, we're going to dwell with righteousness. It will make sure that we're not like Cain who will spend their life as a fugitive and a vagabond without purpose, living a wasted life. What a terrible thing it is to waste life. If we actually understand the gift that life is, the idea of wasting a second of it should mortify us. If we were to understand the gift that every breath is, it should disturb us at how much time we waste, how much fruit we spill. Right? If there's ever been a thing that I've heard in my ministry youth pastoring and pastoring from, from older saints of God is they've always said the same thing, right? And, that, and that's been this. goes like that, right? The day, you're going to wake up and you're going to look like this, right? Your, your life is but a vapor. It's the same thing the Bible says. And if we were to understand how quick life was, how fragile life is, how important life is, and how important eternal matters really matter, we would not go the way of Cain and waste our life for nothing. Now he's not going to be the first, well, he was going to be the first, but he's not going to be the only to waste his life. Later on, we're going to see Esau do a similar thing. We're going to watch many of Joseph's brothers do the same thing. We're going to watch Israel at times do the same thing. We're going to watch Judah do the same thing. We're going to watch you and I do the same thing. Now, as we look here, faith is the road to see God and to please God. Outside of that, there will be no seeing God. There will be no pleasing God. And now Cain says, here's his response in verse 13 to 15. Cain now cries out to the Lord. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. That sounds rough, doesn't it? Notice Cain still here. We find no ounce of real remorse or repentance. We find only a self-will, a, a thoughts of oneself. I can't bear this. This is too bad. This is too terrible. We look at Cain and go, are you kidding me, dude? Now, we do the same thing. We wouldn't feel so good about this. We never want to own up to our responsibility. We never want to own up to the consequences. We love the forgiveness that God gives, but we don't like the consequences that must come still. Right? Here, one commentator puts it, Unlike his father and mother, Cain complains about the harshness of his sentence. He'll be forced to become a nomad. God will hide his face. 
He will become the object of blood revenge. The last phrase assumes a populated earth, indicating the existence of others besides Adam, Eve, and Cain. Now, I've got a little note there for you. Remember that the ones that are mentioned in Genesis 4 are mentioned to develop the theme of the seed of unrighteousness and the seed of faith. The seed of faith is going to ultimately be the lineage bringing in Jesus Christ. And we'll have more comments uh, later on in, in verse 17 about the population. But let it be known. We see in verse uh, 13 and 14, we find in this whole thing, in verse 15 as well, about this vengeance. And everywhere I'm going to go, someone's going to want to take vengeance for my brother. What does this show? It shows that there's more people, all right? And we'll get into that later on. Now, this is important because what we find, though, is ultimately all vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is His. Because ultimately, all that is right, all that is good, all that is just, well, who establishes those things? Only God. This is why today we have to look and see. We have several ideas here floating around in the world that are popular right now. Either one, there's no such thing as as right or wrong, only what I determine is right or wrong. But if I say there's no such thing as an absolute truth or an absolute morality of right and wrong, but I have my own right and wrong, well, there's an issue with that, right? You can't have your own right and wrong and say that there's no such thing as right and wrong because you have to either live in a free-for-all or you have to live in a place that actually has morality. You can't have it both ways. Either do whatever you want to do and there can be no consequences, throw out the law books, live your life as you want, you can murder, you can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, you can kill, whatever, right? It doesn't matter if you really believe that. Or there is morality. Where would morality come from? The high, holy, moral being, the only true morality in the whole universe, and that is the Lord Himself. He is the one who establishes what is true because He is true. He is the one that establishes what is right because He is right. He is the one that sets these things forth and places it into the conscience of man. He is shortly going to be placing this into the way that the governments will be um, established, the way that they will uh, order themselves and operate as he will give the law, the written law, uh, the very word of God himself. And we have to understand, we often think that we're just. But we're not just like God is just. And we talk about other people who, you've got some folks out there who've got issues with the way that God handles things. And the reason why they do is because they want justice in their own way. They want what their own self believes to be right. Ultimately, man wants to be God himself. It's really at the very root of sin. Now, when we look and understand about who God is, if he's just, then I, I, and what he does and all that he does is just, that means I've got no room to go, Lord, I don't know about that one, right? We've got no, we've got no leg to stand on in that case. But what we also find with this is that God will deal justly with all these things in His time. But as we look at Cain, Cain's self-willed religion has led him to self-centered self-pity, that his sins have now found him out, and that he is guilty before God. I wonder sometimes, for us as believers, genuinely, how many times we go through the motions of repentance without ever really repenting. We know that we're supposed to feel sorry for sinning, how many times we're more sorry that someone might find out or that God knows. Sometimes I think that we're far more worried anyways that others will know our sin than we are that God already knows the intentions, the desires of our heart, that His eyes see the good and the evil. The natural thing for us to do, 
the moment we sin is to look around and make sure no one can see because we're embarrassed. This is nothing new. The very first sin, this takes place, right? Adam and Eve sin. What do they do? They look and they realize we're naked and we're not right before each other. They're married, by the way. It's perfectly natural for them to be naked from each other, but guess what? Even they say, this isn't right. Something's not, something's not normal anymore. So what do they immediately do? They cover themselves up and they go, well, that's not even good enough. We hear God walking in the garden. Now I've got to hide behind a tree. Man is always trying in his sin to hide from God. Sin itself never leads us to God, but always away from Him. Sin never, and our flesh never wants to go closer to the Lord. It is always in rebellion. It is always in running and hiding. And then we play the blame game. Or or then we play this game of trying to cover it up and pretend, well, as long as no one else saw, it's not a big deal. Or we play the other game where, well, everyone else is doing it, so it must not be sin or it must not be that big of a deal. Or even worse, as Christians, we go, well, it's under the blood anyway, so I can get by with it. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Well, that's just as wicked and as vile as I've ever heard anything, but yet we do it, don't we? Because we know and we love the truth. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's true every single time. But it does not give us license and liberty to sin. Rather, what it does is gives us license and liberty when we do sin to still go to Christ and ask for forgiveness and to be restored. That's what it does. That's what it allows us to do. McDonald writes, Cain's whimpering complaint reveals remorse for the consequences of his sin rather than for its guilt. You got people who have committed manslaughter feel more guilty than, than this guy, have accidental deaths, accidentally run over a cat or a dog, and feel far more worse than Cain does. Cain's just upset that now his life's going to be impacted. Not the fact that he took the life of his brother. Not the fact that he took a life that everyone is going to know. He's now more upset that things aren't going to go his way any longer. Sin causes us to care more about ourselves than anything else because ultimately at the very root of sin, it is caring more about yourself than it cares about God. It is loving yourself more than it loves God. It is obeying yourself and your flesh more than obeying God. Often every sinner, including ourselves at times, care more about the punishment of sin than the presence of sin. What should bother us more? The fact that we might face punishment for sin or the very presence of sin itself should be the presence. The very fact as believers that we would allow sin to be in us and to thrive when it has no longer a business being in our life, that should bother us much more than God having to do that to us or God having to take us to the woodshed, right? We don't like those times, but we should hate all the more that we are the ones that allow sin into the garden of our heart, if you will. One commentator puts it, what an overwhelming sense of misery, but no sign of penitence, no cry for pardon. Once more, God has given opportunity to sinful man to make it right. Not by his own good works, not by him trying to turn over a new leaf, but by simply, instead of running from God, running to God. Grace and mercy is there for the one who turns to the Lord. The one who comes to Him, He will in no wise cast out. With this, we understand what Cain is doing here. This is too much that I can bear. You're driving me 
out to, to the earth and you're, you're driving me from your face. The idea of your face is, is His presence, His favor. Right? Cain, the only reason why he was able to grow a garden in Genesis 4 is because God allowed. And now at this point, no matter how hard Cain works, nothing will come of it. It is no longer just that God's face is hid, but it is that God's face is against. When we see later on in Deuteronomy and, and things where that the Lord's face shine upon you, the Lord's face before uh, be, it is this idea of His favor, His blessing, His kindness. It's no longer there. What a frightening thing this has to be. And it reminds us very similarly as now He's being driven out even further than His parents were driven out from the garden. And now, yet He still is receiving mercy, the very fact that He's not dead. Barnhouse writes, one of the consequences of sin is that it makes the sinner pity himself instead of causing him to turn to God. One of the first signs of new life is that the individual takes sides with God against himself. Our flesh will never go against our flesh. Our flesh will never apologize for being fleshly. Our flesh only always makes excuses for being fleshly. I deserve it. Everyone's doing it. I've had a hard day. It's been a bad week. Or I just got a bad attitude. Or God will forgive me. Right? That's what the flesh does. The Spirit, not so much. The Spirit is always drawing us to the Lord. Always drawing us to repentance and faith. It seems unlikely that Cain has repentance for his sin, but rather remorse over his punishment. Nevertheless, God is incredibly merciful to spare him. And I would say tonight that God is incredibly merciful to spare us. How many times... We've been punished, faced difficulty because of our own sin. We face the issues. And we say phrases like this, let's be honest, right? We see crime cases on TV or TV shows, or we see those big celebrity court rulings or those big popular cases, right? That they post over TV, and then we see, oh, they found him to be guilty. Good. He deserve, I throw, they hope they throw him under the jail, right? We say things like that, don't we, right? I'm not the only one unspiritual one, right? We say those things about those. Cases that we see on TV, I hope justice served, all this stuff, I hope they get all this punishment, I hope they get the biggest punishment you can possibly get. We say all those things, and then if we were the ones in such case, we'd be going, oh, I'd like some mercy, please. Right? You see, when you and I are in trouble, what happens? We're not asking God, God, shoot both barrels. Give it to me. I really need that punishment. I really need all the justice you've got, God. No. We're going, God, I need all the mercy you've got. I deserve all the justice you have, but I need all the mercy you can give. Right? Now, when we look at his life, Cain could have been thrown under the jail. So could every sinner. And if we understand sin, if we understand God, the murder of Cain is no different than the wrath inwardly of an angry church member who hates another. Right? It's no different. Jesus goes on to say, if you've lusted in your heart, well, that's adultery. Jesus goes on to say, if you've hated someone in your heart, that's murder. So we often equate the bad sins with the outward ones that you can see and measure. But guess what? Where you've got one of those, you've got one on the inside before it ever happened anyways. Before murder ever happened, in this case, it had already happened in the mind. It had already happened in the heart. But I love this. 
Because what this account tells us, certainly it shows us Cain's sin. Certainly it shows us, as we're going to get into in the next few weeks, the depth that sin goes and the reach that sin has. Yet we're going to find the depths and the heights and the width and the reach that God's mercy has. Kidner writes, God's concern for the innocent is matched only by His care for the sinner. Notice God here. Verse 10, God speaks, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Does that sound like a God who cares for Abel, the innocent one? Yes, it does. But what else do we find here throughout the rest of the conversation with Cain? We find that God still yet cares very much for Cain. Do you and I, I can't fathom this, that God would still care for Cain? That God would be merciful to Cain? You say, well, where's the mercy? He experiences such punishment that he cave and bared, he says. Sure! But he experiences just enough mercy where he's still alive. right? Just enough mercy where he can continue to live. Why does the Lord allow him to live? You ever thought about this? As we'll get into this when we get in over the next few weeks and we see how there's more people and population in the world. What is Cain now going to be? Cain is going to be—he's going to be marked, right? We'll get into that in just a second. He's going to be a walking testimony, isn't he? A walking testimony of two things about God: God's justice and God's mercy. God was just in that I am now a vagabond and a fugitive, but God is merciful—the very fact that I'm alive. Now we don't—we do not seem to to see as we'll get into the rest of this chapter. It doesn't look like Cain gets his life right. Matter of fact, he's going to be the start of this snowball effect in chapter 4 up to verse 24 where there's going to be seven generations of just sinners, 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 sinners getting worse and worse and worse and worse. These are going to be the very ones who are going to be a part of, and so it was in the days of Noah. These are going to be the very ones who, it's going to be their kids and their grandkids and their sisters and their brothers and their wives and their children and even some of them, their wives and wives and wives who are going to be the ones where God's going to say, enough. And it's going to be quite some time till we get there, but nevertheless, what we find is that Cain is still going to be used of God. We know that God uses righteous men, doesn't He? He absolutely does. But let's not forget, all throughout the Bible, God has used unrighteous men as well. How many times you ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar? Right? You ever heard of King Cyrus? Right? You ever heard of Artaxerxes? You ever heard of these men? Why? Though they might not have been righteous, God still yet used them to either judge His people or to bring His people to a place of repentance. He used them to, for His purpose. And here Cain is still yet used as a walking billboard for who God is. The Lord alone is the only one who can exact vengeance upon the guilty. And there is coming a day in which He will. Psalm 2 tells us about this. I'll read it for you so you don't have to tonight. Just for a quick, just a quick verse here. Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, saying, The Lord, and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords. And he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Later on in that same psalm, tells us, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. All throughout this, what we find is Cain, yes, he's a murderer. And Abel's dead, yet speaketh by faith. But even this account is not about Cain and Abel. It's about God. The account of Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. This Bible is not so much about the individuals that God uses, but rather the God who chooses to use those individuals. It is not so much about the ones who are talked about and celebrated. It's not even the ones who are counted faithful. It's about the God who accepts their faith and gives them grace and gives them mercy and chooses to use them the way in which He does. We find then in verse 15, we'll be done, the Lord set a mark upon Cain. That's mercy. Lest any finding him should kill him. What is this mark? I don't know either. Nobody else seems to know either. And that's just fine. The mark upon Cain is unidentified, yet it was clearly something that others would know that Cain is both judged and protected by God. Regardless of whether it's a mark on his forehead, on his hand, whether it's a, a, a new hump on his back or a big old mole, or maybe he's carrying around a sign or, or whatever it might be, nevertheless, it is going to be something that distinguishes him from everyone else and it's going to be something that distinguishes him that shows God has judged this man that we know, yet God has protected him, and that God is the only one that is able to fully, finally, completely, justly judge. God is the only one who may truly pardon sin. God is the only one that can truly provide for sin a way out. As we look at this, we're going to end tonight and I want us to understand this. Cain's sin is unthinkable. But so is every other sin. Any sin before God should be unthinkable to us. And when we look at the life of Cain and Abel, and we'll get more into Cain and to his lineage next week, I want us to see that there is something far greater than Cain's sin and something even far greater than Abel's faith. And it's God's goodness and mercy. It is that God is righteous and remains faithful and just. God has never changed. The same God who could pardon guilty sinners in the garden is the same God who can pardon guilty sinners today. The very fact that God is God should bring our hearts to joy tonight. And as well as we study a passage like this that is so full, if we're really honest, should be full of heartbreak that we see this, but yet should be full of gladness the very fact that God is able to save sinners. That He desires to. And the only thing that separates us from Cain is God's grace and faith in Him alone. Tonight, may we trust in Him. May we praise Him tonight. If you're saved, may we look at the sin of Cain. May we look at our own sin. We'll be honest with God, and may it not drive us to shrink back from God, but rather to bring us to God to go, Lord, I'm not worthy of a single moment of life. I'm not worthy of any sin to ever be forgiven, but Lord, that's just how good you are. May we praise Him and worship Him for His faithfulness. Let us pray.
Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night, God. And, and Lord, while there's a great deal of things to look at the life of Cain and Abel, nevertheless, there's far more to see in this passage that's about You. All of the Word uh, points us to You, God. This is Your revealed Word, not to reveal these Bible characters and these accounts, but rather to reveal Yourself to us through these Bible characters and these accounts. May we see the Bible in such a way that it is Your desire for us to know You and so that we might grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to make Him known. I pray that you go before us, go with each one of us tonight. May you ponder your word. May we uh, desire to study your word, to know your word, and to share your word with others. We thank you for this time that we could study. Go with us now in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Hope you guys have a blessed night. And Lord.